is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Maitland McDonough. It is always a pleasure to be here. And back in the booth is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello again. French Month concludes with a look at Jean Roland's Lips of Blood. The film stars Jean-Louis Philippe as Frederick, a man who, one night at a party, sees a photograph of a gothic castle that triggers a memory. He suddenly recalls a time when he was young, when a young woman gave him shelter for the night. After that, he's plagued by visions of her and feels the need to reconnect. Meanwhile, four mysterious women help guide him along the way to his reunion, despite the best efforts of his overbearing mother. Who is this mysterious woman from his past? Why does his mother not want 
them to meet. We'll be discussing all that and more as we go along. Also, if you haven't seen Lips of Blood and don't want anything spoiled, then turn off the podcast, come back after you have. We'll still be here. So, Maitland, I'm very curious, when was the first time you saw Lips of Blood, and what did you think? I first saw Lips of Blood, I believe, when it came to video. So that probably would have been the late 1980s. I had read, of course, about Roland many, many times, but his films really weren't available in the United States. And the first time I saw this film, I thought, okay, well, that's what people mean when they talk about poetic horror. Obviously, I'd already seen movies like Eyes Without a Face, which clearly is a piece of poetic horror filmmaking. But Roland really was somebody whom I knew only because I had read about him, not because I had ever seen him. And of course, I coveted all his posters because they were all so astonishing. I wanted every one of them, and I don't own a single one of them now. So sometimes you don't get what you want. How about you, Sam? Much like Maitland, I read about them for years before I had a chance to see any. I managed to get a hold of a bootleg of Living Dead Girl, just like a, somebody made a tape for me. And I was so obsessed with it, I decided that I had to track down as many as I could. So I want to say that Lips of Blood was probably the third or fourth Roland film I saw and again, it was just this really awful looking, like, ninth generation VHS tape. But I think that sort of poetic quality that Maitland mentioned comes through so strongly that it's like it didn't even matter how the film looked or how bad the subtitles were. It just, it's so beautiful. And that's definitely something that links us as a, a certain generation of people loving fantastic films. that. So many of them were so unavailable, and when we finally were able to get hold of them, they were often in no way in the versions that you wanted to be the way you saw them. They were terrible, multi-generational, downgraded DVDs, and yet it was such a thrill. No matter how bad the resolution was, no matter how off the colors were, no matter how much given that you'd read about how beautiful these films were, that they didn't look as beautiful as you thought they should, they were still enthralling. It was such a thing to see them. It's so hard to explain that to younger horror fans who, you know, when they hear about a title that sounds interesting and they just go on Amazon and buy the Blu-ray, like, while I think it's amazing that they get a chance to see those films cleaned up and restored, it's so hard to describe that, like, feeling of discovery when you have to search so hard to find something and you don't even care what state it's in. You're just elated. Then you brought up the poster and the poster for Lips of Blood is something that I was more familiar with than the actual movie. That image of the five, I think is a drawing of five half naked women and it's kind of like a triangle formation that they're in. I think that might have been the cover for the Video Search Miami catalog for a long time. And so I was more familiar with the images and really more familiar with the titles than I was with the actual movies themselves because of what we're talking about with the unavailability of them only through a lot of these gray market areas where it's like, okay, well, yeah, here's, I don't know how you, how you typically uh, translate this, but I always love the idea of the title of Raisins of Death. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's not really what it is. 
the grapes of death. <laughs> grapes of death, yeah. They, they haven't been desiccated yet, so they're just the grapes of death. I always pictured the California raisin guys just murdering people. I'd like to give a tiny shout out to Video Search of Miami because Video Search of Miami was the way that I saw so many movies that I had read about and heard about and had no opportunity to see until Video Search of Miami came into my life. And I, I realized that there was some place that I could order videotapes of all of these movies that had infiltrated my imagination, but that I had absolutely no ability to acquire. Yeah, it was a godsend. And I just remember spending so much money on those VHS tapes. Oh, my God. Oh, you and me, too. Thinking about it now, how much money you would spend on a bootleg versus how much money you now would spend on a Blu-ray, it, it makes me a little sad, but it was well worth every penny. Yeah, people complain about the prices of Blu-rays sometimes, and it's just like, well, you know, I remember spending at least $25 on each VHS tape, and you were lucky if postage wasn't going to kill you with another 10 or $15 on top of that. And yeah, these were multi-generation. Sometimes the colors would slip, you know, especially if it's a CCAM to NTSC transfer, where a lot of players just couldn't handle that. We'll talk about that in about a month when we discuss uh, can dialectics break bricks, which for the longest time I thought was in black and white, not knowing that there was an actual color version of it, just because of that initial CCAM to NTSC transfer that somebody did forever ago, and that was the only way that you could see the film. So yeah, seeing these films in very compromised versions and then being able to see them on the Blu-ray or the DVD and comparing Oh my God, just to, to see the colors that he uses and just the beautiful imagery of Lifts of Blood as well as his other films. Yeah, it is so gorgeous to see these purple diaphanous gowns that these women wear as they're wandering through the streets of Paris. It's like, it really just is such a sight to see. And not to stay on this for too long, but the other thing that I, I was sort of thinking about before this call is... Especially with these Fantastique titles, when you would order from these sorts of like VHS bootleg companies, you would have no real way of knowing what exactly it was you were getting. Like there would usually be a sentence description. And with these films, they're so kind of hard to summarize sometimes. So it was like, it was sort of like the mystery toy at the bottom of the cereal. Like, you know what's about vampires, but you're not really sure what exactly is happening. Or Whereas I feel like now you get these full descriptions on the back of the Blu-ray and you often have all these sorts of blogs and magazines classifying things for you, telling you what is a classic and what you need to see. Whereas when you looked through those bootleg catalogs, you had to go on like sheer instinct, which I think was very exciting. And I, I really miss that. Oh, Sam, you are so right. Uh, and the fact is, I'm not saying it was better then, because frankly, it is better now that yeah. you are so much more able to understand what things are and what you're buying and to make a, a reasoned judgment about them. And yet at the same time, you know what? It was like buying Kinder Eggs. Like you knew yes. <laughs> that the toy was going to be disappointing, but then the other half of the time it was going to be really great. So that was part of the just you accepted 
that was the thing of buying Kinder Eggs. You, you were taking the chance that you were going to get something crappy, but also taking the chance that you were going to get something absolutely great. And when you got something absolutely great, it was such a thrill. Well, and who knew what kind of version you were going to get of these? I mean, like, could be cut to ribbons. It could be some sort of like, oh yeah, here's the British version where they cut out all of the boobs and the butts and everything else, or who knows what type of version. So I've talked on this show so many times before. It's like there are movies that I'm still afraid of because I'm not sure if I'm going to see the right version. Like when we talked about the devils years ago, it's like, okay, which version of this should I track down and where can I get that? And it was so difficult to even figure out like, okay, well, if I order it here from Warner brothers, it's not going to contain this, 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 and this, and which version of this thing am I going to want to see? You know, later on in the year, we're going to talk about Nightbreed and The Keep. And those were two other movies where it's like, okay, which version of this am I watching? I, because I've read about TV cuts and Laserdisc cuts and all these things. And I want to know what the difference is between those. And I want my first experience to be the best experience. And sometimes if you see something the first time and you dislike it, then you just write off the whole thing. And I will admit the first Jean Roland film I saw, I was like, yeah, this isn't clicking with me at all. And so I just was like, yeah, I'll put this guy on the shelf, not really too interested. And then thank goodness, Sam, you were like, nope, you should cover this movie. And I sight unseen. I'm like, okay, lifts the bloods on the, on the schedule. Let's do it. Wait, what did you see first? I saw Living Dead Girl. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And it didn't do it for me. Yeah, maybe I just saw it at the right time. I mean, I also... What I had mainly heard about Roland when I first got really into Eurohorror was people talking down on him and his work and describing him as this kind of like inept French Ed Wood. When I saw his films, I was like, what did these people see? <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. I, it's definitely an acquired taste. It takes a lot of patience, too. These movies are not the fastest moving thing in the world. And I'll say that I admire this movie a lot more on the second viewing than I did the first viewing. Not that there's, let's say, too much plot going on, but just to connect the pieces from one to the other. Because this movie does not necessarily take you by the hand and introduce you to everything and make sure that you know what is happening from one step to the other. Even some of the locations, I was like, am I in the crypt now or am I in the castle? And just some of that, it really took me till the second viewing before it clicked for me. 
I think I must have been lucky when I first saw Lips of Blood. I honestly cannot remember when it was because I saw a reasonably good-looking version of it, and I guess I just saw it under the right circumstances. I, I don't ever remember seeing it in a theater, so it couldn't have been that. But I saw a version that was good enough looking and that the eeriness and the surreality of it came through to me. And it was clear to me that this had a quality to it that you didn't see in a lot of genre films. Yeah, that's absolutely how I felt. Reflecting back on it, I want to say the first three I saw were Living Dead Girl, Requiem for a Vampire, and Lips of Blood. And one of the things that I remember really striking me, and I, I saw them when I was probably like 16, 17, 18, around there. I came from being obsessed with Italian horror, which does not have a lot of female protagonists, especially like Jalo films. And so they just have that like surreal quality that you're talking about. And they, they were stories about women or stories of, like with a lot of female characters. And that was something that I, I guess I hadn't realized I was missing. And it was just so surprising to me at the time to see, I mean, even Lips of Blood, it's like, yes, there are some sort of male characters like the assassin who pop up here and there. And obviously it follows Frederick, but it's, it's mostly about these female characters. And at the time I was just like, who is this director? (laughs) Like, what is, what is he doing? One of the things that I love about Lips of Blood is that, yes, Frederick is the character that you're following throughout, but everything that he experiences is rooted in something he experienced when he was a little boy. So it has a dreamlike quality to it. And you have to question him as a narrator at a certain point. Obviously, it's not a first person film, so he is not literally the the narrator. But much of what you see in Lips of Blood has to do with his childhood memory of that lady that he met. And his looking for something, looking for that woman or another woman who can stand in her place. And his relationship with his mother, of course, which is quite significant. There is a very female-centric quality to this film. It's also so interesting to me because I think something that happens in a lot of narratives and in real life is this idea that women are often treated like maybe their memories aren't accurate or are you sure this happened and maybe you're wrong or maybe somebody influenced you. And especially I think in narratives that doesn't happen to male characters in the same way where they're shown to be kind of unreliable and maybe they remembered something wrong or maybe they imagined something, but With Frederick, that's like his entire personality in the film is he's always told by his mother and characters around him, like, this isn't real, or are you sure this is real? And and so it winds up becoming such a fascinating journey of discovery, not only in terms of following this kind of like fairy tale mystery, but also him trying to figure out what parts of his memory were real or imagined. Almost no other directors do things like that. The other film that immediately comes to mind in that context, of course, is Dario Argento's Deep Red. Because that is all unreliable memory and also traumatic memory. 
And it's all about who remembers what, how accurate is that memory, how useful is that memory? Because frankly, it's not very useful. Actually, it's completely the tire iron that's going to take your house down. So it's a really interesting thing. And I think people often associate that sort of narrative with European art films, like last year at Marienbad, but not with genre films, like Lift the Foot. And they're wrong. They're totally wrong. And it's so interesting that you bring up Deep Red, because I didn't even think about all of those parallels with the sort of mother as antagonist, the complicated mother and son relationship, the absent father. That would make a hell of a double feature. And with those elements that you just outlined, I mean, this movie so reminds me of quite a few fairy tales, and it's told very much in a fairy tale way. And there are things... You know, we've talked about as far as uh, the Little Mermaid and the way that she saves the prince from drowning and that he remembers a woman. He doesn't necessarily know who it is and he has these foggy memories. It is so similar to the way that Frederick is saved by Jennifer in this movie. And then also later on when he brings a fake head to his mother, it so reminds me of Snow White with the huntsman bring the uh, sheep's heart that was supposed to be Snow White's heart. You know, there were, there are definite parallels between known fairy tales and then also just having this fairy tale feel to it. Which I love so much. And I think that that's something that shows up throughout a lot of Roland's work. And it's not like he's directly adapting a particular fairy tale. It's just almost like this collage of different fairy tale elements that find their way so strongly into his horror films, which is not something I think a ton of directors do. But the other thing that I think it's important to say is that a lot of people, when they think of fairy tales, think of more the French take on fairy tales, which tend to to take out the really grotesque, really horrifying, really brutal aspects, as opposed to the Germans, the the grim versions of the fairy tales that are incredibly rooted in violence, in murder, in brutality to children, especially. Children are treated so horribly in many fairy tales. Roland clearly adapted that kind of terrifying fairy tale and yet put an incredibly beautiful filmic aspect on it. I mean, it's a gorgeous, sensual, beautiful movie. It's very easy to get lost in how intoxicating and lovely those images are. And yet it's a pretty grotesque story. The way that he cuts back and forth between adult Frederick and Frederick as a child. So it almost feels like we're following the typical children's fairy tale where the protagonists are kids, but with this sort of adult male kind of superimposed over it. That's another thing that I don't think happens very often in genre cinema, where you have male characters who are strongly associated with their child selves. It's just, I mean, I feel like we could talk about this movie for 12 hours and still (laughs) still not cover everything. Well, we could. And particularly, I think we could talk about the fact that in many genre films, women are absolutely associated with childhood traumas and childhood memories and allowing themselves to be manipulated in a way that is childlike. And male characters usually aren't. 
So that makes this film quite exceptional and flies in the face of what I think a lot of people who don't like horror films or claim that they don't like horror films focus on as a reason they don't like them because women are treated in a subordinate childlike way. And here is a film in which, frankly, a grown man is also treated in that context. And women are given all the power. I mean, not well, they don't always use it for good, <laughs> but but they are given all the power. And what, that's also one of the things that really, really drew me to his films right away was that he shows this sort of equal female capacity for violence, but he shows this whole kind of spectrum, whether it's violence because you're defending yourself and you need to get out of a situation or violence because in a film sort of like Lips of Blood or something like Demoniacs, where you have a female character who just is sadistic and enjoys committing violence and watching acts of violence, he doesn't feel the need to justify things the way that I think a lot of American genre films do that have female killers or the sort of final girl who has to kill to save herself he just sort of lets, and, and I know that this is definitely something that shows up in a lot of different kind of fantastique films that sort of blur that line between horror and fantasy and fairy tale. He just sort of lets his characters be without always having to explain everything, which I love, but I think can be difficult for people who aren't used to that and who are used to more sort of straightforward conventional narrative. I also think that we should pause for a minute to look at the term cinefantastique. Okay, the French gave us that term. And it's a term that's very different from any term that exists in English to describe the kind of films that we talk about on this podcast all the time. We have the term horror. We have the term thriller. Uh, we have the term slasher movie. And, and we have lots of terms for variations on this kind of movie. But the term cinefantastique has an all-encompassing kind of value that stresses the fact that these are films that deal with things that are outside of our everyday experience and that yet encroach on our everyday experiences, whether they're ghost stories, stories of serial killers, although I don't actually think serial killer movies are particularly fantastic, fairy tales all kinds of stories that deal with a world outside of the everyday day world that we all live in. You know, the one where we go to the grocery store and do the laundry and clean our apartments and go to work and deal with our bosses and go to meetings and deal with all that kind of thing. It's a realm that exists outside that and yet isn't separated from that. It, it's right there if you're willing to reach out and touch it. I don't know that you could really call it a, cohesive genre, but more than just like a, a mood, but I'm going to call it a genre for a second to say that it's my favorite type of film, I think, because it plays with these horror genre tropes and sometimes dips a toe into things you were talking about, like slash. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Actors and serial killer films, while just always remaining weird and surreal and unpredictable and there's something that just kind of slips outside expectation that I love so much about it and I think if I was going to introduce somebody to the Cinefantastique definitely something that you mentioned earlier like Eyes Without a Face would be a great intro to that but I think Lips of Blood would also be so perfect because there are so many of those scenes where we do see his kind of day-to-day life, like where he's just talking to his mother or where he goes to that party. But then because he wants so hard to connect with that past memory, he's able to kind of follow that thread you're talking about and find the areas where that unexplained, unpredictable world overlaps with his regular life in a way that I think is so magical. Well, not only is he exploring it, but then he also has the vision of Jennifer that is literally beckoning to him and bringing him on this journey. Because he might be a fairly ineffectual protagonist at times, were it not for her. Were it not for her helping him, were it not for her four vampire minions rescuing him. And he is this somewhat feminized character because he is constantly being rescued by these female vampires and they show up time and time again, you know, writing my notes today, it was like, he encounters this person. This person tries to either lock him up or kill him. He's rescued by vampires. He then goes to this thing. They try to kill him. He's rescued by by vampires. And it's like this pattern that's going on. And we've talked about in movies before how there are patterns of three, like magical spells almost. And this one has that very much, these barriers that his mother is setting up for him. This woman comes to him and says, oh, I'm Jennifer. And she's got this crazy red eye makeup thing going on. And she's like, oh, I'm Jennifer. Yeah, we, uh, we, we knew each other 20 years ago. Here, come with me, takes him to this room, and you're talking about the surreal, takes him to this room, and there's a frog sitting on this table. <laughs> and he gets this close-up of the frog. He's like, hey, what toy did you did I give you 20 years ago? She's like, yeah, I'm out of here. Locks him in the room. And then, sure enough, vampires come and let him out. And it's wonderful that there is this need for him to be rescued because otherwise, yeah, he is trying to be this investigator, but he wouldn't be doing a very good job had it not been for the vampires that help him out. Yeah. What's also great about it is that it it addresses that fundamental societal division between men and women, which is that men act and women are acted upon. But he's clearly a man, and yet 
he is acted upon throughout this film. I mean, he does almost nothing on his own volition, of his own volition. He does it because vampires, women, make him do things, lead him to do things. It really reminds me of this sort of classic fairy tale trope where you have the child protagonist who's sort of led along this adventure by either some sort of fairy godmother or kind of animal helper. Because this is a Roland film and because it's a horror film, instead of fairy godmothers and animals, we have vampires. It just, it's so perfect. And they are the best vampires ever. I love their vaguely Grecian translucent gowns. They they are so fabulous. They're so otherworldly. And those overly large teeth that they have are fantastic. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I really kind of respect about Rolan is he doesn't ever try to embrace realism the way that and, and like I like I like a lot of different kinds of vampire movies. It's definitely my sort of cinematic comfort food. I think there are certain directors who spend a lot of time and money on effects and they try to make you imagine what it would be like if a person really turned into a vampire and how would their teeth look and how would the blood flow but Roland never cares about realism he only cares about poetry and fantasy and these sorts of gorgeous evocative images and because these women seem so fantastical and surreal i think it gives the film such a different quality because the you the first time I watched this, I remember thinking, are these supposed to be real vampires, or is he having a waking dream or hallucinating? And I love that quality about his films. If you are really caught up on the quote-unquote rules of vampires, you're not going to have a good time with this movie. <laughs> no. If you're just like, oh, well, wait, no, crosses and holy water and sunlight and all of these things... And, oh, if they bite a person, they have to drink all the blood, but then they'll come back and blah, blah, blah. No. The way that the vampire women fall upon these men and just bite their necks and then they're dead and you're done. I mean, these death scenes take about five seconds. When they murder the uh, psychiatrist that uh, ends up holding Frederick against his will, yeah, that's it. Bam. He's dead. And that that was the other thing I wanted to go back to really quick is there's the woman that is trying to slip him up by pretending to be Jennifer, but then the other people that are after him, quote unquote, are men. You've got the psychiatrist and then I love that assassin. I love when the assassin just shows up and he just seems to be everywhere all at once. And he's got those great glasses and that hair and the silencer and just he's fantastic. But so many times over the last month and a half, we've brought up the idea of people being put into asylums between Hourglass Sanatorium and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And then I think we even talked a little bit on our um, Marion Bad episode. And then here we are again, having a male protagonist being taken away against his will and thrown into an asylum. And just it's this, it's the state and all of the powers that be acting against a person and putting them where they don't want to be and calling them crazy and being able to just, well, I guess even on Le Corbeau, we talked about this, where you take the person and you put them into an asylum and then it's just wash your hands of them and walk away because they are pretty much done for. 
that's so often something that happens to women where it's, it's, you know, your ideas or your memory is completely invalidated and written off and you're called crazy. And it so infrequently happens to men. I mean, it, it certainly does. I think, especially sometimes in, in things like film noir where, you know, the powers that be are trying to get a character out of the way because they are on to something and they know too much, but the way that it's happening here in this film, I think is so unusual to happen to a male character. And it's especially sort of flipped on its head because not only is it a man being told that he's crazy and his memories are wrong and now he's going to this asylum, but the person who's sending him there is his mother rather than some sort of like male authority figure. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And the only thing I can think of that opposes that is Lovecraftian literature because Lovecraft characters who are mostly male, there are very few primary female characters in Lovecraft are always being deemed insane, Uh, being told that they're crazy, being sent to asylums, being locked up in basements because they're clearly crazy. It is definitely a cultural theme that particularly applies to women, but in certain instances can be applied to men. And in Lips of Blood, it's definitely a man who is on the receiving end of that paradigm. That is so fascinating, especially the way that you could talk about how Lovecraft reinterprets earlier Gothic themes in a way that must be some sort of kind of expression of his particular time and place. But There are certain, and I don't know that I can fully articulate this, but there are certain things about Lips of Blood that remind me a little bit of Lovecraft. I think maybe just in the way that he is trying to solve this mystery and that it takes him to these places that feel like they're a different dimension or it's like he he discovers a different facet to existence in a way that more than any other kind of earlier writer reminds me a lot of Lovecraft. Uh, You really are keying into a thing that Lovecraft absolutely explored extensively. The idea that there was another world underneath the world that we all live in and that almost everybody was unaware of it, but a handful of people did understand it and realized that there was a danger to humanity that, everybody else was completely ignoring. I I think that Lips of Blood absolutely does use that same narrative trope because it's not a film in which most people are worried about that. Nobody's worried about the vampires, that they're not an issue. And yet they are a part of society and they are absolutely establishing their foothold. That the mother knows that he's right, even though she's having him locked away I guess she's hiring an assassin. She is hiring hiring this woman to pretend to be Jennifer. And she knows that his memories are coming back, and that's the threat to her. And she can't have this. She has stood up this life for him where she has basically made him forget, or he has forgotten, or the trauma was too great so that he has forgotten on his own. But this world that she has set up after this tragic incident of their past... She is fighting tooth and nail to keep that and does not want him to remember Jennifer and does not want him to discover that she's still 
I can't say alive, but still around after all these years. The mother is just, uh, in so many ways, what drew me to this film. I really like, or maybe like is the wrong word, but I'm really fascinated by films and fiction that take these sort of mother characters and make them abusive and villainous and manipulative because I think it's something that certainly exists in the world, but that is not explored or talked about very often. I love that that's sort of gradually revealed to us here. It's like right from the get go, we know that she's controlling and manipulative and they have this kind of weird relationship. But the fact that Roland kind of gradually shows us just how fucked up their relationship is. It's one of his most kind of complicated and and well-written like villain characters. You talked about how some people consider him to be like a French Ed Wood. And when I'm watching this movie the second time, I'm just like, okay, there's actually a lot of really super smart things that are going on here. Like when they're at the party, you're talking about how she's very controlling, you know, like, oh, you know, aren't, aren't you going to get me my drink? Like she can't order a drink on her own, of course. Like he has to be the one that pours her drink or orders the drink for her. And when he has his flashback, and he is trying to remember things. They have their initial conversation about this stuff in this room, I think, at the party. And looking around the room, I see all these drawings and crayon. I'm like, oh, they're having this conversation in a child's room. This is really super smart that they're having this because he is having this moment from his childhood and he's super frustrated that he can't remember it and his mother is doing everything that she can to thwart him rather than help him out and that's yeah one of the first things where you're just like oh something's a little off with this woman and that she is the bearer of the secret for the entire movie that it's going to be like she gives that villain reveal later on which is oh yeah your sister killed your father and that's why I had her locked up for all of these years and basically arrested her at a 16 year old level and left her with all of these toys and dolls and again this very 16 year old or younger because it sounds like it was all the, the toys that she had up to that point threw them all into this room and was just like okay yeah and just tried to lock this problem away. I'm baffled by any interpretation of this film that First of all, invokes Ed Wood because much so I appreciate that Ed Wood was kind of an outsider artist and was following his own muse. This film is nowhere near so unsophisticated as a lot of good films were. It's extremely sophisticated in its understanding of family dynamics, particularly, which is what we've been talking about, frankly, for the last, I don't know, half hour or so. It's very, very perceptive, extremely visually sophisticated, and is a a really fine piece of filmmaking, which much so I I like Ed Wood's films because I like the work of somebody who was trying so hard with so little at his disposal, is an entirely different kind of film. It's extremely visually good, thematically interesting. And sophisticated on so many levels. Yeah, he has this really fascinating way, especially in his first couple of vampire films, 
of making the stories all about these family dynamics. Like uh, his first film, Rape of the Vampires, is all about this group of sisters. The nude vampire is about this very complicated father-son relationship. Shiver the Vampires is about this young woman who's newly married returning to her family's kind of ancestral castle where her cousins live and they're kind of all it it sort of suggested that they're the all that's left of her family. And so I think it's so unusual for vampire films and definitely there are some, but it's so unusual for like a director's main focus for his vampire films to be about family dynamics and kind of unresolved family trauma in such a sensitive way. It's almost like, to some degree, these films are much more about these emotional bonds and all this trauma than about the kind of conventional trappings of, okay, now somebody's going to be bitten by the sexy vampire and there will be blood and gore. And it's almost like Roland doesn't care about that. He cares about the mother and son relationship and the relationship between either this brother and sister or this romantic couple. And it's just so interesting how he kind of blurs that line where you're not sure exactly what Jennifer and Frederick's relationship to each other is. I don't want to be glib, but in a lot of ways, I feel as though Roland films are like John Cassavetti's films. They're a hundred percent about relationships and the convoluted relationships between family members, between parents and children, between siblings, between uh, younger people and their lovers, people that they're interested in. They are incredibly convoluted in their personal relationships in a way that you really don't see in a lot of horror films. They are all about how everybody relates to everybody else and how everybody else's choices inflect the choices of everybody else in their families. And it's uh, amazingly incestuous and absolutely fascinating. So Sam, I was rereading the book that you uh, edited and wrote a lot of essays for Lost Girls. I was rereading that last night and the phrase that kept coming to mind and that was being talked about quite a bit was the monster in the coffin and just this idea of you know the coffin as being this kind of representation of sexuality and it's like okay yeah that that frederick and jennifer end up locked in a coffin and sent out to sea for whatever their next adventure is Hello, Dr. Freud. There's just so many things to talk about when it comes to that, to talk about when it comes to the relationship that Jennifer might have or did have with her father, the relationship that she ends up having with Frederick or what their relationship was before she ended up getting locked away. I mean, just so many amazing sexual relationships to kind of follow up on your point, Maitland, of what is going on with this family and just that it is so warped. When I was working on the book, I watched all of his films in order a couple times, and it just struck me how he uses coffins differently than a lot of other directors making vampire films in the sense that they're they're almost like these gestation chambers or these kind of portals. Like in his later films, he often literally will use a coffin as a portal to get to another dimension and in something like Fiance of Dracula, but 
even in Lips of Blood, it's like a place where you're allowed to become yourself, especially for young women, where you can leave behind these sort of bourgeois values and kind of conventional relationships and conventional family relationships and transform yourself not only into a vampire, but transform yourself or be transformed into something more radical where there's less sexual repression and where you attempt to have healthy family bonds. Like there's this really weird thing that happens in Shiver of the Vampires where she starts off as, you know, a happy newlywed, but you quickly learn that her relationship with her new husband is pretty strained and he wants her to be this kind of like cookie cutter wife but her cousins, who are sort of much older than her, like it would be easier to think of them as like uncles, they want her, they've become vampires and they want her to be one too. And as she meets them and learns about their vampire way of life, it's like she becomes a whole new person and goes through this kind of sense of liberation. And that's definitely something that happens in Lips of Blood, where he moves away from this really kind of damaging, controlling, emotionally abusive relationship with his mother. And that scene at the end when they climb into the coffin together is like maybe the most romantic thing I've ever seen. But it's another example of the coffin as this like portal to a new way of life. I've heard people talk about it in a depressing way, like, well, you know, now, now their lives are over and they're getting into this coffin. It's like, no, it's so optimistic and hopeful. And they're, they're sort of leaving all of this badness behind and they're vampires. So they probably can survive in a coffin on the ocean for a while. I wish he had had a chance to maybe make a sequel or make some kind of follow up, but I think it was just too much for audiences to appreciate at the time. I am so with you. They washed up somewhere and they established a completely new vampire dynasty. I, I, I can't see it any other way. Well, yeah, there's that ship that's out there. And then they even talk about like a, an island or something, don't they? Because I was just like, okay, yeah, this is the next logical step is that they're picked up by the ship. And suddenly we have the uh, the opening part or not the opening, the middle part of uh, Nosferatu with the ship coming into harbor with nobody on it other than Frederick and Jennifer. If you look at the way that his career kind of develops, you get this sense a little bit later in his career in the eighties where he's following these characters who are running away from something. And he focuses less on romantic relationships and families like parent child families and more on, as Maitland was talking about earlier, more on this idea of young people relating to each other, whether they're presented as like sisters or good friends. And so you often have these, these two young girls running away from something in the escapees, they literally plan to stow away on a ship. So I have to think that if he had had the money, he would have done some sort of follow up where we see the further adventures of Frederick and Jennifer in their like vampire Island kingdom. And the thing that I see in all of them is that they're not actually running away. They are running to something. Yes. They are running 
to a place where they can establish a new society or simply establish a new life for themselves, but they are running to something. They're looking for a place where they can be what they, what they are and adapt themselves to wherever they wash up on shore in their coffins. Well, how many of his movies end on that beach or take place at that beach? Like 90% of them. There's very much this sense that a lot of the characters going on this journey in his films are leaving behind toxic bourgeois values and toxic family relationships. And they are going in search of self-expression, but they're also going in search of this idea of magic. A lot of his films touch on this, but Lips of Blood captures it so wonderfully, the way that it ties together Frederick's adult self with his child self, and the way that the child self is able to process these kind of fantastic encounters, like meeting with a vampire... And you get the sense that adult Frederick wants to go back to that sense of magic and wonder, and he wants that world to be real, or he's convinced that world is real, he just has to find it. That's something that I find shows up in all of Roland's films, in in his fiction as well. And it's just so, I think, touching, like that quality of him as a person that he seemed to, even though he had a lot of career disappointments and was very frustrated towards the end of his life, within his art, he never kind of lost that sense of wonder or that idea that you could create that world that you want. That also, frankly, comes up in the lives of a lot of people who have a creative streak in them, uh, some of whom explore it as as adults and some of whom, whom don't. But I think a lot of us remember when we were when, when we were kids and we imagined stories. We had siblings, maybe we imagined them together. If we didn't, we imagined them alone. But childhood imagination is a really vivid, potent thing that is often lost as people grow older. And I think Roland's films tap deeply into the idea that those things that were important to us as children are not necessarily just childish fancies or, oh, you were just a silly little kid. They are things that are powerful and that could lead to a very different adult life. I don't want to be some sort of armchair psychiatrist here, but that's pretty much what I do on the show all the time. It really feels like his childhood fantasies or his obsessions, I should definitely say, are what fuels his films. I mean, 90% of them have that beach. So many of them have vampires in the title as well as in the film. And just it feels like he really is exploring his own psychiatry as he goes through this. And I, I really admire that. It doesn't feel like he's just treading water. It feels like he is really exploring what is important to him and trying to do a different take on it each time. I don't think we literally came out and said this, but the beach in this film that shows up in so many of his films is actually the beach where he spent time as a child. So yes, not to further hit that nail on the head. So many of his stories... I love them so much because they access that sense of wonder and the fantastic that I think shows up across 
this idea of the cinefantastique more than it does any other type of filmmaking outside of maybe like actual fantasy films. But even most fantasy films made for an adult audience, I feel like they stick to these rules and you have a very clear sense, like something like Narnia or Lord of the Rings, you have a very clear sense of what can and can't happen in these worlds. Whereas in the Cinefantastique, like the films of Franju, who, who Maitland mentioned earlier, and Roland, and even somebody like Jean Cocteau, there's that sense that you don't know what's going to happen that I think can be frustrating if you want a more straightforward narrative, but which I think is very magical, possibly because I am still kind of childish and immature. Well, one thing that comes with both Narnia and Middle Earth, and we're talking, when I say those two words, they are both places. And I think with both of those places, for sure with Middle Earth, you have a map. You have a literal map of where these things take place. And in this movie, there is no map. He can be walking down the street, and then suddenly he's by the cemetery. Or he will show up at the castle, and there's no sense of geography in this there are sense there's a sense of place but there's no sense of geography as far as how long does it take him to get from this place to another place there's a train at one point but it's basically him trying to get away from the assassin it really it doesn't matter and that's one of the things too is this is a type of movie where you could open up a door and suddenly be in a whole different place you're talking about coffins as portals and this is that fits with this idea of i open up a door here i walk out and i'm suddenly by the castle. I close this door, I walk out, and I'm inside of the crypt. That's one of the things I like about it. You talked about Cocteau, and yeah, while I was watching this, I kept thinking of Blood of a Poet and just those weird connections that you have between places and there. And you were talking about the coffin, too, is like a a chamber where people develop, and that she, Jennifer, is developing all of these powers while she's in this coffin and being trapped there, being able to read the book that's outside of her coffin, for however 20 years, I think she's trapped in there, being able to read that book and then being able to project herself out into the world. And it's like she's gaining more powers even as we're just watching this film. This film is directly connected to the two seminal texts for all of modern horror, which are Frankenstein and Dracula, which are novels that, on the one hand, do take place in specific places and were written in specific times. And yet, their themes and their development of those themes are unbelievably universal. The idea of the man-made monster rejected by his creator, the notion of the vampire with his disassociation from his roots and his attempts to adapt to a new world are the ideas that drive every vampire movie now and every man-made monster movie now they really are the roots of all of the stories that we all love i think it's so exciting the way Roland engages with that and like builds on it and makes it his own while at the same time you still you can see that like original kind of blueprint or framework I think a lot of this episode would go very well with the episode that we did on Daughters of Darkness, because as I was watching this, I kept thinking back to the research that we did for that episode where, or I did, because I was very unfamiliar with things like, is it Carmela? Is that the story I'm thinking of? 
I was completely unfamiliar with that. And so many of the films that, uh, Sam, you turned me on to and the cat did as well, things like Blood and Roses and just a lot of these incredible vampire tales that I was super unfamiliar with. And it feels like this and Daughters of Darkness would play as a really good double feature. That's another thing that I think is coincidental, but also maybe a sign of the times type of thing where all of a sudden in the early seventies, you get all of these different directors in different countries making these films that are primarily about female vampires and about the experiences of women, like, like vampire lovers, the hammer movie, You've got Daughters of Darkness, you've got Roland's films, you have things like Blood Spattered Bride, the Spanish film, or Jess Franco's Vampiros Lesbos. There's just this minor explosion of cult movies that take things like Dracula and re-envision it for the time period. So it's like, I feel like those are all definitely products of their time, the way that Maitland was talking about how Dracula and Frankenstein also are, but they tap into this kind of universal theme about how the vampire is used to explore things like fears of sexuality and mortality and modernization that I think are timeless, but it's just sort of so fascinating to see how they kind of all pop up right around this sort of same window. They pop up again and again and again as these issues begin to feed into sociopolitical things. That's why, frankly, novels like Dracula and Frankenstein are still as potent today as they were when they were written. They were certainly books of their time, and yet they delve into psychosexual, political, social issues that are frankly no different now than they were in 1899 or earlier. The other day I witnessed this exchange on social media where somebody was saying that the reason they like horror movies is because they're not political. And I was like, I was like, okay, I'm not going to get into this because I don't want to deal with the stress of arguing with strangers on the internet. But it's like, to think that these sort of foundational horror plots are not political, the mind reels. It's ignorant, because F, yeah, they are so political. I mean, there is no divorcing the classic horror stories from sexual and societal politics. There, There is absolutely no separating the two. They are completely intertwined. That's what makes someone like Roland such a kind of unique treasure is because he does have these political themes where he talks a lot about family relationships like we've been saying, but also the way in which social values make people, both men and women, feel repressed or constricted or unable to be themselves. But he makes it feel like you're watching this piece of poetry, not like somebody's lecturing to you about what your political views should be. Roland's films never feel like you're listening to somebody who's holding up a great big poster that says (laughs) capitalism oppresses the workers or heterosexualism oppresses women and gay people. It's not that at all. 
but he is absolutely addressing those issues. The mother in this film, who we keep talking about, is played by Natalie Perry. And something which I think is very sort of unique is she had this really close collaborative relationship with Roland. She worked on many of his scripts. She wrote the scripts for a lot of his hardcore films. She did things like costume and makeup and assistant camera work. And she just was this steady presence throughout much of his career. And here is cast as the mother. So I I felt like, you know, we should just acknowledge her because it's so, so much more unusual than if he had just kind of cast a woman to play that role. She is somebody who has a presence online and who has spoken about her relationship with Roland, which was entirely a working relationship and the way in which her work with him intersected with her own feelings about things, uh, sometimes in a good way, sometimes not so much. But she is so much a part of his filmmaking that she absolutely needs to be recognized and named by name. This really goes back to something that you were saying at the start of the episode about how Certain people maybe don't like horror films because they think it says certain things about women or subjugates women. And Roland, even though people like Natalie Perry aren't always publicly celebrated or or even named, as we've been discussing, Roland has all of these female characters, focuses on what we could maybe call female themes. But women were so important to him behind the camera as well. And I I think he, you know, should be shouted out for that because unfortunately, and and I know this is definitely changing, but people just think of horror as this kind of male-led genre, which is just wrong on so many levels. You know, anytime I can point that out, I I feel like I have to. Oh, and I am so with you because, yeah, there are a lot of boys in horror who are doing boy things, uh, you know, shocking their mothers and (laughs) being, you know, incredibly violent, incredibly sexist and doing stuff that shocks people. The fact is that women have been part of horror for decades. I started writing about horror 35 years ago. You know, women are a huge part of the horror community as filmmakers, as actresses, as critics, as theorists, Carol Clover deserves an enormous shout out here for Men, Women, and Chainsaws, talking about horror way before most people were taking it seriously. We are, we are here and we are part of the horror community and our voices are part of what's happening. Earlier, you know, you brought up Frankenstein as one of the sort of foundational texts that's returned to again and again and again, and we wouldn't have that without a woman. <laughs> yes, without young Mary Mary Wollstonecraft, later Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Yeah, she was right there in, at the Villa de Adato in, was it 1819? Mm-hmm. When they were all creating bogey stories, and she wrote a story about a man-made creature that absolutely established an archetype for the genre, uh, one that really, I don't see how you can better it. It's a terrific, terrific novel, incredibly well written by a woman who was the daughter of a pioneering feminist who was married to a man 
who was a pioneering feminist. So, yeah, Mary Shelley. Sorry, horror bros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, horror bros. I feel so threatened right now. <laughs> hey, you had us on. This is your fault. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break and play a few words from our sponsors, and we'll be right back right after this. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. All right, we are back and we're talking about Lifts of Blood and more specifically about the second version of the film, which I wrote down here included hardcore inserts, but this is 
way more than hardcore inserts. We have talked on this show before about other films where inserts have been put in place to take a film from maybe a PG to an R or an R to an X. And this is a whole different ball game. And I'm very curious, how did we get here? How did we get to Suck Me Vampire? We got to Suck Me Vampire because the market was rapidly changing in Europe And a number of directors who made these sorts of unusual kind of low budget horror films without a huge audience, if they wanted to continue working and eating and making the films they wanted to make, a lot of them turned to hardcore films just to make money. And that definitely was something that happened to Roland. But the sad thing or the the really frustrating thing for me is Roland at first kind of embraced the idea or at least was kind of curious about it and wanted to see where it went. Like he was somebody who, you know, as we've been talking about this whole episode, had this really strong vision and made all of these really personal films, but occasionally would take on work for hire projects. And I think when he got involved with softcore and with hardcore films, he had this idea that he could make a different type of sex film. Because as he went on, he was sort of told by producers, you know, add more sex, add more sex. And he had this thing where he never wanted to show conventional sex scenes. So, you know, that's how it's sort of started where he would have people in unusual kind of non-conventional uh, either sort of scenes or things like that. Like he didn't want to feel like he was just including a sex scene because the producer told him to. He He wanted it to fit with the tones of his films. And that's how you get something like Shiver of the Vampires, where somebody pops out of a clock and then they make out. He was pretty quickly discouraged because he would try to make things like he made this great film called Phantasms from 75, which is one of the only gothic horror hardcore films that, like so many of his movies, is set in a castle and has all of these kind of Roland qualities, but it bombed. And he felt really, really discouraged because he felt like people didn't want to see anything interesting in hardcore films. They just wanted sex scenes. And so after Lips of Blood also bombed and did really poorly, he was kind of forced for a while to make more conventional sex films. And so with that, in order to try to make back some of the money he lost, he recut the film. Like he took scenes from Lips of Blood, recut it, and added kind of this different framing story. Like there are new scenes with Jean-Luc Philippe. Like he doesn't have any hardcore scenes, but so he basically took the footage from Lips of Blood and made a totally different second film that it almost feels like one of those white coat movies where people, someone is talking to you about sex and it's giving them an excuse for the director to show all these different sex scenes. And Suck Me Vampire's sort of excuse for its plot is it's talking about the connection between vampirism and sexual deviancy. He's not in this? I thought he was. And for sure, he's getting his knob polished at the end. I've always heard that that was like an. Uh, like a quick switch Stunt out. Cock. Yeah. 
Sorry. If I can use the term stunt cock, I definitely have to. Yes. <laughs> I thought towards the end of the film that he ends up having sex a few times, but I could be, I mean, I will have to say the quality of this film, we're talking about Video Search of Miami days. This would make the people at Video Search of Miami go, maybe the quality is too bad. Maybe we shouldn't sell this because this is really beat up. The print, quote-unquote, of Suck Me Vampire that's out there is nasty. It looks bad. And it's tough to even tell sometimes, like, what's going on in some of the scenes. Though, thank goodness for fast-forward, because these sex scenes are fucking long. They go on forever. And I talked about the difference between hardcore inserts and what we have with this. I think I'm being generous by saying that this is 10% lips of blood. It might be 5% lips of blood because then it is just sex. Otherwise, it is just hardcore sex, orgies, girl on girl, mostly two girls with one guy, just a lot, a lot, a lot of sex, which is absolutely fine, but it is almost hilarious to see how they try to use the scenes from Lifts of Blood to tie this thing together. Fuck Me Vampire really is kind of sad. Yeah. And I'm somebody who is actually absolutely okay with hardcore porn. I, I am fine with it. It has its place. And good hardcore porn, you know, is pretty fucking good porn. The fact is that things like Suck Me Vampire were just attempts to keep up with the time, but they were already behind the time. It really wasn't something that worked. Porn is porn, and porn has its place. And I am somebody who absolutely 100% believes that porn is a good thing. Porn is an expression of desire, something that many people want to see, and is a good thing. But trying to graft porn onto non-pornographic films, I think, is not really such a great thing. It really frustrates me because I do think with somebody like Roland, there's this sort of magical window where you have a number of directors who feel like, like people like, I feel like Radley Metzger is at the top of the list and people like Gerard Damiano who made these really incredible films that also happen to be hardcore films. I totally agree with you. It, it really frustrates me when people talk about hardcore films like they're in this ghetto and like they're not real films. Certainly things like, you know, Pornhub clips, which are 10 minutes and have no plot, like that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about these sort of feature length movies. Suck Me Vampire is such an example of this kind of sad shift where the porn industry was changing and especially directors like Roland, who kind of worked with a foot in each field for a while, he wasn't encouraged to be creative. I mean, he he has this quote where he says, the reason for the death of French hardcore culture, if you want to use that term, is that the audience just doesn't care. They don't want cinema, they want people screwing, and that's it. That's why after Phantasms, that that film I mentioned, which is like a year before Suck Me Vampire, after Phantasms, I made my porn films in a rather uninspired way. Knowing what I know now, I would say it is impossible to turn pornography into something of interest. And I have to disagree with him because I think there are many wonderful porn films, but 
I do get that he really thought that people would want to see his types of films with these kind of elaborate gothic plots and these sort of monsters and vampires as a porn film. And at the time, I think people just wanted something quick that they could throw up in a, a porn theater and didn't have these sort of elaborate, weird, fantastique elements. That's sort of how we wind up with Suck Me Vampire, is he just was so devastated at the poor reception for Lips of Blood and all the money lost that he just kind of gave up for a little while. And because there is some softcore in Lips of Blood, the women, the vampires in the diaphanous gowns, there's Jennifer who is naked, but, and, and Frederick gets naked, but there's one part where it takes place at a photographer's studio. She's the one who took the photo of the ruins that triggers Frederick's memory. When we meet her, she is photographing a woman who ends up kind of, it's not very, explicit at all, but she ends up kind of touching herself, and it's like, okay. Then that happens, and then at one point the photographer, after the model leaves, the photographer goes upstairs and comes back downstairs, is like, where's my dress? And then they embrace, she and Frederick embrace fade to black, and that's it. There's not kissing, there's not sex, there's not even really, well, it's kind of implied sex, but that's about it. And this, it's like they use that photographer studio as Ground zero. This is where all the sex takes place. <laughs> so it's like we have this set and we have shots of this woman taking photos. And so now we're going to use that as an entree into all of these people who are getting their pictures taken or being filmed having sex. And we go from the woman who was touching herself earlier into now a guy shows up and it becomes this whole big scene going on. And like I said, the sex just goes on for so long. And that was the thing that I like about the moves that, that we've talked about on this show. Things like, you know, opening of Misty Beethoven or Raw Talent or uh, any of the, the adult films that we've discussed, even Water Power. The sex is there to serve a purpose. And you come in, the sex is there for a reason. Usually the sex scenes aren't very long at all, and they serve the story. Whereas this, it is just sex for sex sake. And it's like, okay, yeah, maybe this would be good if it was cleaned up and I could see things on Pornhub. But I don't think I would ever click on these because it's just, it goes on for way too long. And it just, nothing is very exciting. The most exciting thing for me as a film watcher was seeing how they utilize clips from Lips of Blood and turn those into this new movie and like, Oh, isn't that interesting that it's not a flashback to him as a little kid. It's a flashback to him going to the castle as an adult and the four vampire women are there. And then he in voiceover says, then I fell asleep and I woke up the next day and I couldn't remember what happened. And then he becomes like obsessed with finding the four women. And that's like his thing for the movie, even though it really never comes to fruition. And I also need to chime in that I worked with Radley Metzger when and I forget the video company was doing video releases of his films. And a lot of what we talked about was the way in which erotica shaded into pornography. And, you know, Radley's work was mostly erotica, uh, an occasional dip into pornography, but it was a, a period when I think a lot of people, including 
sideways people like me were trying to define what was hardcore porn and what was sexually explicit films that weren't dirty movies, but were definitely kind of dirty. And that was very much a thing of a time. And I, I think very much a thing of a time that has a bearing on what we're talking about. There was a, a huge gray area for probably uh, two or three years where it was hard to define what was a dirty movie, what was a hardcore movie, what was a, what was an erotic movie, and uh, what, was a, what was a sensual movie. Something like Suck Me Vampire kind of illustrates that shift, because before that, he he made films that I would call sort of what you were just saying, erotic films that happen to have hardcore content, or that happen to have maybe kind of extreme softcore, things like Bacchanal Sexuelle, which if you, you know, if you want to check out some of Roland's hardcore films, I would definitely say track down Phantasms or Bacchanal Sexuelle, which I think has an actual release over Suck Me Vampire, because they do have a narrative focus. They're actual coherent movies that are often very erotic and sex serves the story. Unlike Suck Me Vampire and his most of his hardcore films, actually probably all of them after Suck Me Vampire, they follow that same formula where there's a very loose plot introduced in the first five minutes and then the rest of it is just an excuse for these really long hardcore scenes. You have something like Disco Sex, which it takes place at a recording studio and it's like this band is jamming and all these people come to party while the band records and they just have sex the whole time. You can tell that he's bored with it, which I think is really frustrating because he seemed to take such joy in storytelling and filmmaking that it's definitely a little sad to see him clearly bored and dejected and doing something just for the money. Yeah, and if the filmmaker's bored, then the audience is probably going to be bored as well. Because I definitely was, though I laughed quite a bit with the reveal of him narrating the story, and then he's like, oh, no, I'm confusing two guys. There's one guy who's sharpening a steak while this woman is giving him oral sex, and then we cut back to Frederick, and he's like, I hid in this village, and now they don't know where we're at, and blah, 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 blah. And then the camera moves down, and there's that same woman giving him head, and there's a cum shot, and and he goes, yes, suck me, vampire. And I'm like, oh, it's the the title. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) And her vampire fangs come out during the cum shot. So many great things all coming together. Yeah, just fast forward and watch that part. That's not a Roland thing. That is definitely a 70s porn thing. Most people went to porn theaters hoping for 80 minutes of hardcore porn, and if they were lucky, got 10. It was a thing of the time. It's strange, too, because certain actresses from Lifts of Blood were adult actresses, so they would... The the footage would merge very easily. And then I know that there were other actresses that were in Lips of Blood who either did or would do adult content, and then they don't, they're not in the action. So it's kind of strange where it's like, usually when you are doing something like this, or you're 
for lack of a better term, detourning a film like this, and you take what was a movie and then say, okay, I'm going to give this a, a, a remix, and now suddenly it's going to have porn bits to it. It's always about cutting around people or was this person into adult cinema? Okay, now I can use them in this scene and then maybe cut against someone who wasn't into it. Maybe use a body double or maybe do an over-the-shoulder shot. Just these kind of ways to hide the way that you're now making this into another movie. But this is just so sloppily done. And then, like I said, there are actresses where you know they either did do or would do adult content, but they are just not tasked to do that with this at all. So the Castell sisters, you're just like, okay, well, I know that they would do hardcore films, but nope, they're just going to walk around as vampires in this one. When he first was asked to include more sexual content in his films, realized very quickly on that he did, he hated filming sex scenes with like quote unquote regular actors who had never done any hardcore films, but he was much more comfortable filming hardcore scenes with, with porn actors because I think he felt like they were more comfortable and they enjoyed the scenes. And so everyone was having a good time on set. And so he was one of the few directors who I think really enjoyed working with like hardcore performers in his regular films. Like the Castell twins are definitely an example of that, somebody who kind of moves back and forth between his different types of work. And obviously, Brigitte Lahaye is someone that started out in porn, and he loved working with her so much that he cast her in a lot of his non his like later non porn films. But he did say, and I'm guessing that this answers the question about Suck Me Vampire, He did say that it was difficult to schedule both the Castell twins at the same time. So I I guess they were just really busy. But he said that he loved working with them and that they were sort of enthusiastic about doing whatever. But my assumption is that when he went to do those kind of recuts and make Suck Me Vampire, maybe they just weren't around. But they are in some of his more boring later hardcore films. Let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Stanley Sweetheart is a typical college student who wants to be a typical underground filmmaker. Keep coming. Keep coming. Where am I going? Stanley makes films and loves it. Stanley makes love and films it. How are you, darling? How come you never knocked me up? Hey, how's school, baby? Stanley, I'd like to make love with you. I mean, it's surprising what people will do to to get into the movies. Have you gone to bed with a lot of girls, Stanley? No, no, not that many, actually. 37 Such a liar. I don't know why I lied. I think... I think I'm afraid of people. Or maybe of what they might think. I guess maybe I just want to be liked, you know? I like you, Stanley. Sometimes I hear you. Then you're gone. Open your eyes and listen to the door. She's a nice chick. 
And you know that if you live in the city long enough, man, your skin turns gray. Stanley Sweetheart needs a new head. Blink your feet up and take some. Okay. <laughs> Hold on to your head. He's growing one in his magic garden. Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart. That's right. We'll be back next week to kick off a month of who the heck knows what. We've been doing a lot of themes uh, this year, but June is a grab bag of stuff, starting off with the Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Maitland and Sam. So, Maitland, what has been keeping you busy lately? Um, republishing escape porn novels. That's always my go-to. Writing film criticism and doing a bunch of other things that writers do. Oh, well, being in quarantine, of course, because I live in Manhattan. So I have just edited a collection of short stories called Love in the Time of Corona, which is about love stories during this awful quarantine time published by Riverdale Avenue Books. Please take a look at it. I think the stories are good. Are they more lips of blood or more suck me vampire? (laughs) I think they're more lips of blood, but you know, I haven't looked at them all. So maybe there are some suck me vampire stories coming up and Oh yeah. I just did uh, a lengthy commentary for Paul Schrader's comfort of strangers which is a very perverse, sexually charged film. And I'm about to do a commentary for Jagged Edge, which is everybody's favorite, oh my effing God, thriller. I haven't seen either of those. I've only seen the beginning of Comfort of Strangers, and I absolutely love what I've seen so far, and I can't wait to watch it now and to watch it with your commentary. Yeah, I will definitely pick those up. So fucked up. So worth watching. Who's putting them both out? Criterion is doing uh, Comfort of Strangers, and the UK company Indicator is doing Jagged Edge. Awesome. I will look for both of those. And Sam, how about you? What's keeping you busy? I am mostly busy with different film criticism projects, like recording commentaries, and I'm working on a book. But since we're talking about Roland, I should mention that Lost Girls, the book I edited on his films, it is the hard copies are sold out. But if you're stuck at home, and you're bored, and you want to read about vampires, uh, you can find it at the Spectacular Optical website as a PDF. And hopefully the sort of gods of republishing second editions will smile upon me and it will be available one day. Other than that, uh, things I've worked on that should be out soon. I contributed to the Severin, Umberto Lenzi and Carol Baker Jalo box set, which I'm super excited about. This is always, I always fail at this part of the episode. Uh, I guess the other thing I would want to mention that is sort of along the same lines or loosely along the same lines as Roland's work is Devil's Honey, the Fulci film, which 88 films just put out. I did a commentary for it and it's a very unusual erotic thriller rather than a straightforward horror film. So I think 
that is enough for me today. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thank you so much to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.